Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. You are here listening to another episode of Rob Observations. As as the host of Rob Observations, I can tell you that this journey has uh, been going on now almost two years, and I am at, at the most the most basic. I am just walking through all of the comic book memories I've had since I was a kid, grabbing comic books off the spinner rack. When I was a wee lad, six, seven years old, and just the strong impression, obviously comics made a very strong impression on me. It has a fueled a, a lifelong career. I mean, 35 years in the business now, and, and that feels like a lifetime. And prior to that, like 18 years getting ready to have that career. So, uh, you know, I've just been, I've, I've kind of all, almost just known nothing but comic books and comic book related Stuff and just to, just to give you an idea, not only was I buying comic books off the rack in 1975, I would have the Super Friends on uh, on Saturday mornings. So so Superman, Batman, Aquaman, uh, Wonder Woman, uh, the, the 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 whole gang. Uh, let's see, Superman, Batman, Robin, Wonder Woman, Aquaman. That, yeah, that was kind of like the, the lineup. But they they eventually uh, had the Wonder Twins. There was um. Uh, there, there, I did an entire episode on international superheroes, mainly uh, uh, introduced through the Super Friends. Wendy was one of the first. There was a, a pair of normal, kind of non-powered kids that were the audience surrogates for the first season of Super Friends, but they were quickly replaced by Zan and Jaina, who had, who were aliens who had powers that worked in kind of unison with each other they, they they activated them wonder twin powers activate if you've ever heard of that that came from the super friends cartoon on monday through friday there was 60s um re uh, uh cartoons from the 60s of superman and batman that would play that i never missed there was obviously the 1960 is it 68 spider-man the spider-man spider-man does whatever spider can very popular cartoon that ran on the uhf channel that i've spoken of on the show often it's where i first also encountered so much of the anime that affected me and on and the live action um uh uh kind of japanese shows johnny sako and the and the, and the giant robot uh, Ultraman, those were two live action shows. Ultraman was like my jam. I loved Ultraman. All of this I was seeing also on a black and white uh, TV screen. And my computer monitor on my laptop is bigger than the TV monitor that I watched these TV shows on. It wasn't until we moved our new house uh, elsewhere in Anaheim that we got a, a, a fancy schmancy color TV. Yeah, we were we were living off a of pastor's salary. Remember this, but when I wasn't mowing lawns and grabbing shekels and nickels and, and, and whatever currency I could in order to go down to the local uh, market and grab comic books, there was plenty of comic book stuff on TV. Again, you had Lou Ferrigno as the Hulk make his debut during my childhood. Uh, the, bat, the, the, the reruns of the Adam West, Burt Ward, Batman show were daily, stripped daily uh, in the afternoon, in the evening on local channels like channel 5 channel 11 out here you had the original black and white george reeves superman uh uh story it's so weird that that, that two guys with the last name reeves were uh you know get, went went on to become a generation's superman super weird but linda carter uh burst on the scene in wonder woman that uh got huge ratings and uh again that's my childhood that's my childhood uh Six million dollar man, bionic man, six million dollar man, bionic one, both again extensions. Those are kind of the, those are the, uh, 
the the kind of breakout comic book live action stuff that my generation was enjoying. It was a step above the stuff that like the George Reeves Superman show from the 50s, early 60s, the the 60s Batman stuff. I mean, there was an attempt to take the material a little more seriously. We had Shazam and ISIS on in the also on Saturdays. Uh, there was a Tarzan cartoon growing up. Um, they did they did a, a break off cartoon on a different network of Batman. So it was Super Friends was on Channel Seven, and the Batman cartoon was on Channel Two. All of this stuff. Hopefully, maybe some of you guys caught some of this because uh, a lot of you guys uh, are in my neighborhood, my my vicinity of my age. Um, and it's weird because I, I grew up in the Bronze Age and my work was in the 90s. So it's a really great audience bridge. And I was there to watch all of the developments because, again, I've always consumed this stuff. I'm a consumer of comic books and superheroes and, and I dig it. And uh, one of the things that has always fascinated me and I try and bring it to the podcast and I try and, you know, I'm just, uh, I don't have anybody with numbers in front of me that say, hey, Rob, you should talk about this. We The audience wants to talk about this. Um, I, I don't have uh, surveys or audience feedback that tells me which um, way to take this show in some in, in the most beneficial direction. And I probably wouldn't listen anyway because I just really want to kind of do my own thing. And one of my the things that I do here is I ponder a lot of the stuff that uh, sits with me throughout a day, a week, a period of time, especially when I'm, I'm doing work. And, you know, your average writer and artist live uh, very isolated. I know writers clearly... I, 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 I can speak as one of them, especially uh, when I was was doing the, the most work, which is either at the beginning of my studio at Extreme Studios, where I was spearheading the launch of so many different titles, whether that was Youngblood, Bloodstrike, Brigade, Later Prophet, Glory, Breaking Story, on all of that stuff. I would need to be isolated. But the most I was isolated in recent years was when I was at DC Comics and writing Hawk and Dove, Deathstroke, Grifter, and... Uh, Man, there was another one. Hawkman. That's right. Hawkman. All simultaneously. At one point, I was doing four monthly books, writing them for DC Comics. And I would write in like 5 in the morning, 4.30 in the morning if I woke up that early. Uh, generally, always by 5. But if I got up a little earlier, I'd, I'd immediately uh, take out my computer or my iPad, iPhone, and I would start uh, dictating the plots that I needed to get to all the different artists who were going to draw these different stories and of course get my own plots that I was drawing whether that was for Hawk and Dove or for Deathstroke approved in that time I can't be interrupted I can't talk a lot of my writer friends I can't bother them when they're writing they have they, they need that five six seven eight hours a day to just be in isolation look at that screen and put down their ideas create those paths those character decisions the choices uh, choreograph you know verbally choreograph the action if that's what they do so, so, you know, being a writer is definitely an isolating job. It's, it's uh, <clears throat> one where you're left to ponder. You are left to ponder quite a bit. Similarly, laying out uh, and, and drawing has some of that built in, but it's not the same. It's less isolating. You're still, you know, probably going to do the majority of your work alone at a desk with a board, on the couch with a lap board, whatever. You can sneak in an occasional phone call. You can you can talk over ideas. You can, you know, what I what I call kibitz together. Um, especially for me, when it gets down to inking, once the structures are are laid down and once the storytelling is on the page, I can I can chat quite a bit. 
But in recent years, I have less people to chat with. Um, it's just kind of, I, I my tribe is very tight. I, I talk to the people within my tribe. I don't know if we've, I think we've done an entire episode on comic book tribes. Um, and this is where I will pivot briefly. <clears throat> the best of Rob's observations is ahead of us. How do I know that? Because there's the stuff that I haven't told you, the stories and the juiciest tidbits that I have never, ever released. Uh, maybe I told a friend at dinner, maybe, you know, if you were a friend of a penciler or an inker who was having a dinner with me at a show, maybe you heard a couple of these stories that I'm not telling on my podcast yet. But there is definitely, uh, it, I, I, w- I would identify it as the more, um, it, it'll definitely be the, the the more controversial stuff and only controversial in in the sense that it's revealing some maybe poor decisions or poor uh, poor character and poor behavior that I have seen others exude, and it's it's only if that behavior uh, and decisions have have affected me. Only in that case would I even share them. I mean, I'm not aware and don't have any interest in other people's laundry unless it's a public feud that I bring to you by reading it to you and reading all the the, the, the different uh, the different takes that have as they've as they've laid out you guys absolutely love your feuds but we as a culture we love our feuds and and honestly it feels like as a culture we we're nothing without our feuds it's either liberals versus conservatives republicans versus democrats this team versus that team you know uh, all, all sorts of different cultural positions nowadays i mean we love to feud and we definitely love it when more famous people feud whether it's uh breakups makeups uh just it's 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 crazy right and uh you know uh, as i'm doing this today there was a project that got it looks like it got the the plug pulled on it a big giant studio a, a, a an ip that you would all be very familiar with but i don't want to get into it i don't i don't want that shrapnel i don't want any part of what's going on with that right now. And it doesn't really interest me. It doesn't affect me as a fan, maybe a little, but it doesn't affect me personally. But there's some stuff, there's some stuff that I have been privy to conversations, actions, um, battles I've had to take up that I just don't have not shared here at this point at this time. And, and, or maybe that great instance where that guy came to me looking for advice and I heart in the most heartfelt manner gave this person the advice that I thought would benefit them the most. And they then did the exact opposite, ignoring everything I had told them and later justified it by, well, they had already made their mind up prior to me meeting to tell them, you know, that they solicited me. We got a time, we gave some, you know, advice. And uh, so that, 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 trust me, the best is yet to come as I get more comfortable sharing all that I know over these many years. They're, they're, they're just going to entertain you. You know, they're just going to entertain you, but Comic books has always been full of great and entertaining personalities. I think we're all a bunch of twisted uh, folks who see these these characters and these these heroes and these um, stories in our head, and we have to get them out, whether we are the writer uh, typing away the plot um, or we are the artist drawing the plot. And uh, you know, so 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 uh, we we again, as I was growing up, there were definitely guys mostly guys in the business who were exerting immense influence. And we're going to discuss a lot today about the sphere of influence and what 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 some of that uh, sphere of influence 
has has meant and 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 not just in the the comic book industry but well well beyond um take for instance okay because again i'm obsessed with stuff that has great impact and and often i'm i'm obsessed with the source of of that impact and if i can go all the way back to the source okay uh, a guy today uh, I was going through my Facebook. I'm part of a Legion of Superheroes group. It's a franchise that I absolutely adore. I love. I'm obsessed with. But I have to keep my obsession to my childhood. Nothing that has happened with the franchise in the last 15, almost honestly, 20 years, two decades, has interested me one iota. They had a game plan. I did an entire... Uh, episode on this called How to Crash a Franchise. I think it was in August. And it's how DC took a successful formula that they had had built over many years with this property that you probably don't know that well because you don't hear you you don't hear of them because they haven't gone on to be a their their signal hasn't been boosted significantly. Um not anywhere near the way a Batman or a Justice League has been boosted. They are the, the heroes of the 30th century. I've touched on them before. I'm only going to touch on them briefly now. In, in bringing to you that in this group that I'm in, where mainly people discuss the past of the Legion because really no one's excited about what they've been doing the last 20 years. Nothing's had impact, nothing's sticked, nothing stayed. But from the early 70s throughout the late 80s, Legion was a super hot book. I've covered this. It got spinoffs. At one point, Legion had three, four different spinoffs. It had its regular title, its deluxe title. It's it, There were miniseries like Legion, Legionnaires 3. Then there was the who's who. They gave an entire who's who of the Legion. And I covered the who's who and the Marvel Universe handbooks in a, in an episode called Across the Universe, where the same year both companies put out these exhaustive, but extremely useful and entertaining, basically encyclopedias full of, you know, character uh, details, identities, height, strength. They're great. I contributed to... Um, the Marvel Universe Book of the Dead. It was my first assignment. It was their anniversary of that was last uh, right right in the uh, late late October of nineteen eighty seven, which is where I was able to say that I got hired in the in in the spring of eighty seven, and I got published in the fall of eighty seven. Hence, this thirty five year career that I've been able to have. But I was on one of the Legion message boards today, and they uh, a guy was looking at a costume that, to the best of my knowledge, if I remember correctly, Wolverine wore for three appearances. Those appearances are X-Men 107, X-Men 108, and then I think it's Iron Fist 15. I don't have the number right in front of me, um, but it's when Iron Fist, drawn by Chris Claremont, illustrated by John Byrne, Iron Fist battles the X-Men. Now, <clears throat> in, in X-Men 107 and 108, they... Uh, the X-Men team is off-world on another planet attempting to uh, insert themselves in, in, in a conflict that is involves the Shi'ar. And the Shi'ar are, have Princess Lalandra, later Queen Lalandra, and she is a love interest of Charles Xavier. He is in love with her. He, he, they, I mean, at one point he goes off with her on her spaceship for many years in the X-Men comic book. They encounter the defenders of the Shi'ar, which are called the Imperial Guard. I've also covered this, how the Imperial Guard were this massive Echo group. Echo being an obvious, you know, reflection 
of another idea unapologetically. The Squadron Supreme is that for Marvel in regards to the Justice League for DC. The Squadron Supreme is an echo. My very first episode of Observations deals with the fact that one of my very first comic books that I ever encountered, Avengers 141, had the Justice League echo, the Squadron Supreme. I'm like, that's Superman, that's Batman, that's Aquaman, that's Green Arrow, that's Black Canary. I mean, th- th- there was no stone left, left unturned. It was the entire Justice League, except they were, they appeared different, but their inspirations were the same. I mean, Golden Archer instead of Green Arrow. Um, you know, you had Hyperion instead of, instead of Superman. You had Nighthawk instead of, instead of, uh, instead of Batman. You had Doctor Spectrum instead of Green Lantern. You had the Wizard in front of, in, instead of the Flash. You had Tom Thumb stepping in for the, 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 the Atom. You had Cap'n, Cap'n. C-A-P, like Cap'n Crunch with an apostrophe N, Cap'n, Cap'n Hawk was obviously Hawkman with a mace. Very exciting. You're like, what am I, what am I looking at here? Well, I've covered this before, just scratching the details here. We have the Imperial Guard. The Imperial Guard is the Legion of Superheroes because Dave Cockrum, X-Men 107 is his last regular issue before the mantle is handed off to John Byrne. He doesn't finish this two-part story. John Byrne finishes it. X-Men 107 introduces an exhaustive echo. I mean, there's Colossal Boy, there's Saturn Girl, there's Lightning Lad. All of the echoes are there. Some of their names escape me. The, the Superboy echo was a guy named Gladiator, but um, maybe the Lightning Lad guy was just named Bolt uh, in, from memory. But um, they, they this Phantom Girl, uh, they, they had them all. They just, they had them all. Uh, and they were fun. And again, it was just like when I picked up Picked up that Squadron Supreme, except several years later. Now I'm seeing the Legion of Superheroes. Dave Cockrum came to popularity, and there's an entire episode. I can't believe I'm footnoting all this de- this stuff today, but the, I did an episode last uh, summer called "The Secret History of the X-Men." Had had DC treated Dave Cockrum better, he never crosses the street and goes to work for Marvel, and he takes Storm with him, and he takes Nightcrawler. And he takes the inspiration for Colossus, and that's where he lands and works with Marvel, and they and they transform the X Men franchise. And believe you me when I tell you that Dave Cockrum was instrumental in that. Again, the sphere of influence that Dave Cockrum had is immense, immense. But between these two issues, one hundred seven and one hundred eight, Wolverine takes on the Timberwolf character. Timberwolf is another is is a is a Legion character who is feral from another planet, but he has wolf qualities and aspects and he's his he physically looked like logan before logan he had the pointy tipped hair brown costume well in the imperial guard his name was fang now and timberwolf absolutely predates wolverine by quite a bit but timberwolf actually began to look more feral under dave cockrum so so then he let leaves and he reveals how how logan looks under the mask because logan the, the, the Wolverine appearance had already been established by Herb Trimpey in the Hulk 180-181 you know, debut issue where he battles Hulk and the Wendigo. But underneath the mask, how Logan looked is established by Dave Cockrum who had done the more feral version of Timberwolf and now they're both looking at each other in X-Men 107. Wolverine's costume, his blue and yellow costume is, is, is uh, seared off of him by a heat blast. So he then moves decisively to take the costume off the other Timberwolf guy named Fang. Just rips it right off of him. It is brown and and tan, and it is very much the same colors of the Timberwolf of the Legion of Superheroes. So he is now 
kind of Timberwolf. I mean, right there in front of you, Wolverine has become Timberwolf. So, so Wolverine is now wearing the Timberwolf Echoes costume named Fang. He has Fang's costume on. And again, it doesn't have a mask, so it's just his, it's, it's, it's his visage, his face, his actual face with the pointy hair and the mutton chops, which is very much more re- resembling DC Comics Timberwolf from the Legion of Superheroes. And maybe, maybe they were testing out this look, okay? Because he's still wearing that costume when he gets back to the Iron Fist issue. And it's a great issue where Iron Fist opens up and battles, you know, the X-Men. It's great. Uh, Iron Man is, is uh, Iron Fist is very capable in, in holding his own against Colossus, Nightcrawler, uh, Wolverine. I think it's Storm who finally kind of calms everything down, exerting her uh, superpowers. But in the meantime, the physical conflict, again, as drawn by John Byrne, inked by Dan Green, written by Chris Claremont, is a blast. I loved it as a kid. And, uh, and, and Wolverine is in his tan fang costume which is an echo of the legion of superheroes timberwolf okay so we've set the table i'm looking at my legion facebook group today and a guy comes out and says hey you know uh wolverine here looks like a uh uh uh, this timberwolf is is a ripoff of wolverine here Timberwolf's a ripoff. And I go, man, here we go again. Obviously, an, a, a less maybe undereducated reader of comics who has wandered right in to make a public statement without any research whatsoever and says, hey, this Timberwolf look is what ripping off, you know, Timberwolf ripped this look off. <laughs> and then, of course, everyone said, no, 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 you understand this is Timberwolf's look from a character based on what Timberwolf was supposed to be in the Marvel Universe via this other group, blah, blah, blah. Okay. They cover it. But this guy wanders in and is like, hey, man, you know, DC clearly ripped off the way Wolverine looked here for Timberwolf when we all know historically that is it, it, it is the other way around. And it was not, I believe, meant in a hostile manner. It was meant as a poke. Now, I've said this before, I think in my very first episode when I discussed this, a more one of the more pompous writers I have encountered in comics uh, in 1996 when discussing this period where Marvel and DC would look at each other and create echoes. And Marvel and, and DC is not without their echoes. Vigilante, uh, a, a vigilante that his name is Vigilante, he made his uh, debut in... Uh, the Titans annual, when Titans was smoking red hot, the number one book for DC Comics by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. And he was 100% their version of the Punisher. A uh, vigilante that worked, ha- had a different, you know, secret identity, who worked in this assumed identity uh, with a rifle, with guns, and meted out his own personal justice. It was 100% down to the crosshairs that they used. He was an absolute imitation of Punisher's wildly, I mean, Marvel's wildly popular Punisher character who was getting spinoffs left and right. The mid-80s was the um, red meat for the Punisher and Punisher's fan base. And DC jumped on it. And in their biggest selling title, and they gave you a version of that character called 
the vigilante, the vigilante got his own series to compete with the same sort of vigilante justice that the, that the Punisher was uh, meeting out regularly in multiple titles at Marvel Comics. So, 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 but what I was told in a very condescending ma- manner by this writer who presumed that he knew more than I did, even though I was older than he was. We have to understand, Rob, that, that these guys from Marvel and DC would get together, they'd have drinks, they'd have dinner, and they'd laugh about these echoes that they were, hey, I'm going to do a version of the Justice League in my Marvel comic. Hey, I'm going to do a version of the Invaders in my you know, DC comics called the Freedom Force, okay? Here's what I said to that writer. It doesn't matter. If you were seven years old, eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old, 11 years old reading these comics, it didn't matter. None of that mattered because all you saw was, hey, this team that Marvel is publishing reminds me of the Justice League and I don't need to be privy... Ten-year-old Robbie Liefeld didn't need to get up on the bar stool and have drinks with Roy Thomas and Julie Schwartz or or anybody else who was sharing a drink from Marvel and DC at the local pub to to, to understand that hey they're kind of kicking each other in the pants. The condescending writer was trying to tell me that it wasn't done with any malice, therefore it was okay, and that when people like myself or this writer who also had his fair amount of echoes. That we do it, it's not the same <clears throat> because we are not at the pub friendly with these two publishers. And by doing it on a, with a third or a fourth publishing entity, not Marvel DC, we are more on the outside looking in. And I just felt like that was a ridiculous double standard. But this opens me up to the sphere of influence, the absolute sphere of influence. That, what we just discussed, that entire episode speaks to the influence of DC characters on Marvel characters and the influence of a Marvel imitated character on a fan who then, in the modern day of 2021, believed that Timberwolf was somehow ripping off Wolverine when it was, in fact, the reverse. So spheres of influences and and spheres of influence are really interesting to me and sourcing things and knowing the source and so many people just step in it today and go hey man that's this when it's not and it deserves so much more in-depth analysis or i mean really for the most part google can get you really really close i am as guilty as anybody as going on twitter and asking a question that i know google could possibly answer because i'm hoping that somebody super educated with maybe a little more insight will give me the breakdown because when you do something like this, you ask a question. Hey, does anybody know the origin of, you know, the Timberwolf Fang, uh, you know, character uh, and influence in the X-Men? Well, you may get somebody on Twitter who really wants to break it down for you in a very intelligent manner. But often you're going to get, try Google. Try Google. Okay. As the smart, smarmy answer. Well, I can try Google, but I was maybe even looking to have a conversation about it. You know, so, I mean. I've been there. I've done that. But in terms of the sphere of influence, we're going to we're gonna examine, because we've already mentioned his name, John Byrne, because he really is one of the most and continues to be one of the most influential people that, have, that has done comics in the last 50 years, period, full stop. Uh, I've mentioned him often. I've seen people criticize uh, this show, and I'm saying that as a... Um, a, a I'm, I'm self-aware that maybe some of you out there in, in uh, across the internets uh, on the other side of, of this recording think I talk about John Byrne too much, but I got to be honest. These run for the ages, and trust me, I have done a lot of 
talking, but this one will specifically land us at a recent body of work. This discussion today will point us towards a recent body of work that John Byrne has done, and I'm all too happy to share it with you, but it just reminds me of the sphere of influence. And I'm going to tell you where my obsession with this right now is, as I've said, given, given that I love to find the source of things. And what I did in that Timberwolf slash Fang slash Wolverine illustration involving the X-Men, the Imperial Guard, Legion of Superheroes, and Iron Fist is show you a bit of sourcing, okay? But the uh, the sphere of influence and, and the way that, that, that people can carry their career across the decades, we see it in all aspects of our lives, in sports, in politics, and in uh, in entertainment. And, and in sports, look no further than the NFL, the most popular sport that America has. It's our most popular athletic ex- export um, to the rest of the world. And you can look and you can see a guy named Tom Brady who has vanquished all of his peers. The Manning brothers are retired. Kurt Warner is retired. Um, you know, he has cycled through so many different uh, adversaries. He has, you know, uh, now emerged to battle his old coach, his old team. Um, you know, Tom Brady, plus 20 years. That's a big, big, uh, that, that's, that's a long career in athletics, period. I mean, I feel like I, at 35 years in my own career, that I have done, um, that I've accomplished a lot. I've seen a lot. Um, I've been influenced. Maybe I have influenced. Um, but the 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 twenty year career in athletics is is extremely impressive, given the physical demands on the the human form. Given given you know the 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 hits and 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 the conflict that you put yourself in. You know, the NFL is. <clears throat> excuse me, very glad, gladiator-like. I mean, you go into that arena, you sacrifice your body, you're going to get hit. Maybe you're twisting and writhing as you're grabbing a catch or you're, you're snagging a, a ball out of the air and you get hit awkwardly, land. We've seen it. We've all seen it. So longevity in sports is a big deal. LeBron James heading towards 20 careers. Kobe Bryant had 20 careers. Tim Duncan had, I mean, 20 careers, 20 years. Uh, Kobe Bryant had 20 years. Tim Duncan had 20 years. Today, uh, I saw Scottie Pippen is um, the, the the kind of Robin to Michael Jordan's Batman during the Chicago Bull championship years. He has written a new book. It is um, a little on the bitter side. He's coming out, taking swipes and attacking Michael Jordan, who I believe is the greatest of all time. Yeah, I've seen, um, I've been watching uh, uh, NBA basketball since 1979. I've seen a lot. I will maintain that Michael Jordan is a breathtaking once-in-a-lifetime figure. Everybody needs a team. Nothing is won on your own. You always need complimentary teammates. Um, specialists, sometimes they're defensive specialists. Nowadays, they're three-point specialists. But I see Scottie Pippen <clears throat> is out there. But the reason I'm bringing Scottie Pippen up is I was surprised to learn because I had forgotten that he played for 17 years, not the 20 years of some of these other absolute greats. Does time matter? I think time does matter. And 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 the time that you put into your work and drawing and making art, there are people in comics right now who are producers. They put together teams and they watch other people do their stuff. The anti of that is somebody like Eric Larson, who we've had on the show, a great interview with Eric Larson. We did it a couple months ago, as exhaustive as we possibly could with the time that we were given. And we, 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 I felt like we were given plenty of time, but I could have gone on for hours and hours and hours, given that Eric is so prolific. Eric writes, draws, inks. That last part, inks. I mean, he 
it, it, it's, an, it's an extra part of the labor. It's the final lines on the page, and, and many people have another inker do, do it for them. He inks it all himself. I, I thought it was a really big deal on this new X-Force. I'm speaking to the labor here, not the accomplishment. This just the sheer labor. Okay, I have a new X-Force book that comes out on November 24th. I really thought at the beginning that I was going to hand it off to other people to help me ink it. Uh, I have done that in the past. I have split chores on different books. Um, this time around, I opted to ink every single panel, every single frame, every single strand of hair, every bit of stubble myself. Rule all the borders, ink all the blacks. It was a one-man show. Eric Larson does that every single month on his book. Other people... Uh, you know, now I see Mike Mignola has lots of different people do Hellboy. He doesn't do Hellboy as much as other people do Hellboy, and Hellboy has a rich universe to explore, so why not? Todd does the same with his Spawn title. He does not and has not drawn a Spawn story in over 20 years. Sometimes he goes in, he inks a little, he dabbles and puts some ink on, but for the most part, everyone else is doing the heavy lifting of actually creating the stories, which is intensive. It's labor intensive. The people who want out of doing it are getting out of doing it because of the labor involved, creating art, making art. So the guys who have been doing it way longer than I have, I am even more impressed by, and, and we're going to land back here on John Byrne. And his sphere of influence and how it is never ending. But I'm going to talk about, just so you understand, in regards to like Tom Brady and 20 years and these guys who do 20 years. And then, and then you look at an athlete and you go, wow, I thought you played longer than that. But 17 years, long time. But it's, it's uh, it, you know, I can see where the grind gets them. But in comic books, comic books is kind of a grind. Again, I've talked to you, every artist who's getting up today, and there's plenty of them. And who are looking at a blank page and are going to start start top left and go to bottom right and fill that up with pictures. You know, my hat's off to you. That's a really difficult, very challenging, trying um, accomplishment. It, it, it requires discipline on top of all the other skills. So, <clears throat> in regards to sphere of influence, <clears throat> think about a guy like Steven Spielberg. He comes on the scene as a young man, uh, does, some t t does some TV some Columbo, some, you know, uh, uh, so, so maybe, maybe, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to get what he did in TV wrong, but I know he dabbled in TV. Then he gets his big break. He does a TV movie. Then he's off to the races. He's a hot shot. And we all know about the problems that beset this film, but the bottom line, he was over, able to overcome it as a young man and have the first genuine Hollywood blockbuster, the movie that changed everything that set up the stage that would find Star Wars, you know, taking advantage of what Steven put down, and that is kind of the age of the blockbuster, was kicked off by Jaws. Lots of theaters, same weekend, big openings. This was the beginning of all of it. He does this in 1975. He makes this, you know, thrilling kind of, I don't know what, uh, is it a monster movie? Is it a thriller? Is it both? Jaws is a gripping, masterfully, directed you know is it an adventure film about this you know shark that is terrorizing off the shores of this small tiny <clears throat> eastern beach town and uh it's great it's great huge hit changes his career changes hollywood changes the way movies are made he follows that up with this cerebral science fiction film which is uh 
where I first saw Steven Spielberg, a Steven Spielberg movie in the theater. I was, my parents did not bring me to Jaws. My sister was not allowed to bring me to Jaws. It was too scary. It just from seeing it, the commercials in the summer of 1975, just from all the coverage and then eventually seeing it on TV. But even just the, the coverage, I was terrified to go into the summer. Really, if you were alive, you know that Jaws kept people at, largely, well, many people out of the water the summer of 75. Think about that. A, a work of art, a movie, kept people off the beaches. Steven Spielberg answers that with a sprawling, sci-fi, ponderous, intellectual, sci-fi epic, but no less entertaining. Richard Dreyfuss is magnificent in this movie. Steven Spielberg directs his ass off. It is one of my favorite Spielberg films, top four, top three, close encounters of the third kind. Really amazingly done. Another kind of thriller pacing, but the unknown of these UFOs, clues that they visit us in the past, a man who is a, a, a missing child, a distraught mother, and, and, a, and a man who is really at his rope's end and, and, and is uh, slipping into madness as his own family falls away from him and he in pursuit of this, unlocking these alien secrets that he is now haunted by given his encounters. Close Encounters is followed by a movie we don't even talk about because what happens next is so important. So 1978 is Close Encounters. 1981 is Raiders of the Lost Ark, which literally, figuratively, actually remade a, a, the genre. But you, you now have three blockbusters, Jaws, Close Encounters, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark is <clears throat> brings back the serial thrillers of my dad and all of our dads at the time's youth. I saw this movie in Cerritos with my friend Kenneth, his dad, Mr. Pledger, and my dad, they were pals, and they took their kids, and we all saw it on a Friday night, and we flipped out. It, it, I, I could not believe. I wasn't excited, per se, to see it, other than I knew Steven Spielberg would deliver. Even as a kid, I knew his name meant quality, action, Hollywood celebrated him. But Raiders of the Lost Ark just hit it home for me. I could not believe it, it is immaculately made, paced. It's a perfect movie, perfect performances. Um, my... Dad and Mr. Pledger kept talking on and on about they were like the cereals of their age when they would go and for 25 cents, 30 cents, 50 cents, sit back and watch a couple, you know, uh, uh, serialized adventure films, whether it was a jungle adventure, a sci-fi adventure, whether it was Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon, um, and, 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 you know, it would be an afternoon at the movies with a bunch of short films, each with a cliffhanger, come back next week, you know, cycle, rinse, repeat. And then... A year after Raiders of the Lost Ark, we are all smacked in the face with E.T., the extraterrestrial. Phone home. I know that I saw that movie in orange in a theater that has since been torn down, and I cried. And I couldn't believe how much I was touched in E.T. phone home and the Drew Barrymore of it all. The, the j Just the entire movie was deeply wow. You just were wowed by E.T. You loved the actual alien. You loved how he made you laugh. Um, the abilities, his powers, the scope, the danger of the government that imposed their will as they try and take E.T. from this family, the race to get him back. Oh, the sense of wonder, the sense of amazement. That is an epic run. Now, the movie I'm not mentioning, which was released in 1979, is called 1941. It is Spielberg's kind of flop. It's a, it's a comedy. Maybe he shouldn't have done it. Is it a bad movie? No, but it doesn't, doesn't have the box office credo. But when you get four out of five, of your efforts from a seven-year period. So so Spielberg makes 
five movies in seven years. 1975, well, they get released within seven years. Jaws, Close Encounters, 1941, Raiders, and E.T. Four of those are legit blockbuster films that changed pop culture. That is a sphere of influence. Whatever he does after that, who cares? He gave us Jurassic Park. He gave us Schindler's List, um, Minority Report, War of the Worlds. These are some of my favorite films. I love them. But that run cemented, created, uh, further kind of... uh, uh, magnified Steven Spielberg's influence. People wanted to make movies like Steven Spielberg. They wanted to have Steven Spielberg make their movies. It was profound. It is um, as impactful a direct, a a run by any director. And I include, uh, you know, Christopher Nolan, Tarantino in that. I mean, and and they're all different, you know. There's he he's he's flexing some Hitchcock, Hitchcock muscles here, you know. He he he's he's flexing some Cecil B. DeMille in in terms of his scope. Um, it's 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 amazing what he is accomplishing as a young man, as a director. That that I mean, a, a shark, spaceships, a World War II adventure film, and a modern day kind of alien feel good adventure comedy incredible all of them massive giant hits et would go on to outgross star wars it was so resonant everyone saw it that is what is that is a sphere of influence that you can cycle back to again this young uh make it or break it he was gonna sneak onto sets he was gonna study how things were, were made steven spielberg and he was gonna stop at nothing to be a success and even that with the shark and how it kept breaking down and they couldn't use the mechanical shark as much as they wanted. So he had to go to more Alfred Hitchcock like choices and theater of the mind and show you have your mind dictate maybe some of the fear by what he's not showing you rather than having someone mauled and eaten like instead of having the girl repeatedly eaten by the shark, her getting tugged and tugged and tugged in the opening of that movie. And you know, she's a goner and you know what's going on because you know, you came to see a movie about a great white shark that terrorized people. So, so Spielberg, uh, an example of a sphere of influence. Amazing. I just love this. This is, you know, what a mark on the culture. Then let's, let's go to TV. And honestly, as I, as I, as I, as I jotted down all the different, um, people who I thought were really had a giant sphere of influence. I'll go with Glenn A. Larson first. Glenn is passed in 2014, but this is a legacy of shows. It is not the biggest legacy I'm going to share with you by far. I talked, I've mentioned before some of the Westerns that I enjoyed as a kid. This was a knockoff of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and it would have gone on for seasons had not uh, Pete Duell, one of the two charismatic leads, killed himself. Tragically, which kind of really, the, the series, they tried to recast his role. It didn't work. I was a kid. I rejected it. I could not stand the new guy who was uh, Hannibal Hayes. And uh, so Pete Duell, by killing himself, uh, extinguished this show called Alias Smith and Jones, but it ran for three seasons nonetheless. Six Million Dollar Man, Battlestar Galactica, The Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew Mysteries, Buck Rogers in the 25th century. That right there, it's pretty good. Pretty great run. Each of these went multiple seasons. I mean, Six Million Dollar Man, five seasons. Battlestar Galactica, a couple seasons, had some 
issues given the how expensive the show was and they thought they could get something cheaper and get the same audience and they didn't ABC aired grievously. Hardy Boys Nancy Dew launched a whole bunch of careers, lots of eyeballs. Buck Rogers in the 21st century was a 25th century was a giant hit. Giant hit. When you see Gil Gerard uh, uh, out there, uh, uh, you know, signing autographs right now, it's all because of this period of his life as Buck Rogers. But the bigger hits were to come from Glenn A. Larson. Knight Rider. Boom. Knight Rider. Boom. Hasselhoff. Kit. Okay? That is a monster. That may have been his biggest hit, except he also did a show called Magnum P.I. And he got two bites at the apple with Lee Majors because he made the fall guy. Okay? Glenn A. Larson was prolific. What? I mean, this guy is a prolific entertainer. Westerns, sci-fi, spy shows, detective shows, robots, stuntmen. I mean, huge. What this guy, so from 1971 to about 1980, mid-80s, 88, this guy owns television, just owns it. Huge run. But no one had a bigger sphere of influence, and I mean no one, the most prolific television producer of all time. When I was a kid, I saw the end uh, uh, episodes of Mod Squad, which was a huge kind of cultural hit. <clears throat> I, I I watched a show, and it was my favorite for years and years and years, and it's now enjoying a resurgence on CBS. I think it's in its fifth year, SWAT. SWAT was born in my youth in 1974, 1975. Oh my gosh, what a theme song. Maybe the best ever. SWAT. Starsky and Hutch. Starsky and Hutch. I mean, come on. Killer, killer, killer show. Two badass, you know, detectives. Yin and Yang. Vegas, Dan Tana, Robert Urich as a Vegas detective, ran for seasons, okay? Charlie's freaking Angels. Five seasons. We all know who the Angels were. Kate Jackson, Farrah Fawcett, Jacqueline Smith, Cheryl Ladd, Shelley Hack, um, Tanya Roberts. Amazing. Charlie's Angels, massive, cultural, huge. Fantasy Island, the plane, the plane, okay? Mr. Rourke, heart to heart, two old people, two old rich people, solving mysteries. Giant hit for ABC, heart to heart. T.J. Hooker, William Shatner returns to TV, does about 90 episodes of T.J. Hooker, he becomes a cop. Heather Locklear's first big role. Love Boat, Love Boat, Love Boat runs forever. Dynasty, maybe as big as they come, kind of um, filled that, followed in Dallas's huge footsteps and equaled it, became a bigger show than Dallas for a brief period, or a period, period. A period, period. Becoming bigger at any point matters, and Dynasty did it. Right there, what I just said, Mod Squad, SWAT, Starsky and Hutch, Vegas, Charlie's Angels, Fantasy Island, Heart to Heart, TJ Hooker, Love Boat, Dynasty. So there is a current reboot of Dynasty. There was a reboot in the 90s of of Love Boat. There was a, a, a There is a reboot right now on Fox of Fantasy Island. There have been multiple movie franchises and other bites at the apple uh, with, with television at Charlie's Angels. Starsky and Hutch was made into a movie. Uh, ben Stiller, Will Ferrell, um, um, uh, SWAT is continues now. This guy, if I just stop here, this producer is ridiculously prolific. This stuff won't go away. They're still making SWAT. They made a movie out of Mod Squad with Claire Danes, I believe. Yeah, they did. They made a movie out of Starsky and Hutch. There's no reason they can't take that bite of that apple again. They've got all these different attempts with Charlie's Angels. Fantasy Island is happening right now. 
Okay, Dynasty is re- has been re- rebooted. I think it's on the CW. Okay, guys, if we just stop there. I mean, Love Boat. Give me a break. Love Boat alone. Love Boat alone. But Aaron Spelling, okay? Because that's, that's this guy. He doesn't stop there. He roars into the 90s. I mean, roars in... Um, uh, roars into the 90s with Beverly Hills 90210, Melrose Place, then polishes off the 90s with 7th Heaven and Charmed. This guy has a sphere of influence. It's incredible. It is absolutely amazing, the sphere of influence. Is there a more prolific television producer ever? No. And he was fabulously wealthy. We saw Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, and when they'd show him and they'd show all of his... <clears throat> vast fortune because he made a killing in television. I mean, look at this. I mean, I, I kind of feel like if it was just Fantasy Island, Love Boat, and Charlie's Angels, the guy is like ridiculous. But then you add Dynasty, Beverly Hills 90210, Melrose Place. I mean, Starsky and Hutch, SWAT, the Mod Squad. This guy, oh, all all these years, all these decades, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, the guy was killing it. Just absolutely killing it. Sphere of influence. That, Spielberg's movies, Glenn Larson's TV shows, Aaron Spelling's TV shows. They influenced your life, what you saw, which all of it. For me, these comic books, these Marvel comic books and comic books by John Byrne were incredibly influential. Incredibly influential. The other day they were like, well, what, what, what should Marvel do with the X-Men next? They're still saying remake Dark Phoenix. That would be the third cinematic attempt. If you count the animated series, it would be the fourth filmed version of Dark Phoenix because nobody's still gotten it as good as the comic book did and Days of Future Past. I mean, again, I talk about this all the time, but here, here we're going to focus today. We're going to focus on this one element. I'm going I'm I'm to bring it all home here. Sphere of influence and why I'm so absolutely floored and amazed by it. But uh, I'm going to read you 1981 brought us the publication by Sal Cortoccio. Sal Q Productions bought us, brought us the art of John Byrne. The dude has only been super popular by the time this is printed by, for about three years. <clears throat> but they brought us the art of John Byrne. Okay, And this is the most robust, entertaining interview he has ever given. He uh, This and the Comics Journal are like the 1A, 1B of... I mean, these are just the most badass. Just John Byrne is so confident. He so knows who he is. He knows what he means to the comic book industry. And he just profoundly, continuously puts forth um, his opinions, his takes on everything. So right down here, the guy interviewing him, who, who is an author, he a writer, a really great writer, Roger Stern. Um, oh, no, no. Uh, uh, is this? Wait, 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 wait. Who conducts this interview? Oh boy. You know what? Um, not really sure, but here we go. This interview, don't not really sure. There's a Terry Austin preface. There's a Roger Stern preface. I don't want to mix those up. They ask him, John Byrne, in the middle of this interview in 1980. So he's left the X-Men by the time this is... <clears throat> this is... Uh, but again, sphere of influence. Check this out. At one time, there was talk of you doing a what-if book. This is the interviewer that wondered what would happen if Magneto had formed the X-Men. Could you give us that story? Let me preface this with, when I got this, when this, when this reached my hands, I didn't get this book for about six months after it came out. The one copy that my comic store had, 
I, I saw it. I didn't buy it. I went back. It was sold. I had to wait, get my hands on a copy. There was another comic store that I saw it at years, not years, six months later, down the street in a different part of Orange County. And uh, I got this and I got, I got, I get home. So I get this in about 1981. Okay. And uh, I'm 13 years old, 14 years old, somewhere. I'm on the, I'm on the cusp of 13 to 14 during that time. And I read this and I got to tell you, given how much I adored John Byrne's work in the same way that maybe you adore an actor or an actress or a director like Steven Spielberg or a character like Luke Skywalker or Darth Vader, you know, I loved John Byrne. I loved his X-Men. I loved his work. So hearing him say this story to me, my heart felt weak hearing this story that we did not get. So I'm about to tell you a story that we did not get. Okay. What if? At one time, there was talk of you doing a what-if book that wondered what would happen if Magneto had formed the X-Men. Could you give us that story? So here we go. This is freaking amazing. This is now John Byrne talking. The basic premise was that Charles Xavier had faced Lucifer, who was a character in the early X-Men books. I'm giving you who Lucifer was, so you know who he is. Prior to the new X-Men launching. Charles Xavier had faced Lucifer, and the deadbolt fell on him the thing that crippled him, only this time it killed him completely. So there was never a Charles Xavier. It was Magneto who formed the first band of X-Men, which were not called the X-Men, they were called the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which Magneto introduces the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants in issue four or five of the X-Men. They were Cyclops, Angel, Iceman, Marvel Girl, Beast, Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver. Again, they were Cyclops, Angel, Iceman, Marvel Girl, Beast, Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver, with somewhat different names. <clears throat> Cyclops was still Cyclops, but the angel was Archangel. Think about that. Marvel would adopt this and call him Archangel when they transform him and give him the steel wings in the late 80s. But this is this interview is being given in either early 80 or late 79 when he tells this. So Archangel, Byrne is on this early on. The angel's name was Archangel and carries a flaming sword. Iceman had a different name. I can't remember it right now. Marvel Girl Marvel Girl was Psyche. P-S-Y-K-E. Beast was still Beast. And obviously Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch still had the same names. The story was essentially that with that particular team forming the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, Magneto beats everyone. Now, right next to this interview are John Byrne's sketches of Archangel with the angel with a belt with a flaming sword and the Beast who has mechanical claws on a mechanical wristband. They're, they're, they're wrist gauntlets, and he has Wolverine's claws. He has given Beast, Beast's, the original Beast, before he turned blue, when he was kind of just a thick guy with big hands and big feet, he's given him a mask, and he's given him these three claws, and I cannot tell you how many times I drew this Beast. I drew this Beast because I was he had merged what I liked about Beast with what I liked about Wolverine to one character. He has a Cyclops with a significantly different visor and he has a scarlet witch drawing which is kind of how she would have appeared in the story so while you're reading this interview you're getting what he would have given you visually which even makes it more difficult to process that this, that, that this particular story did not happen it would have been the greatest issue of what if ever so it says here this story was essentially that with the particular team forming of the brotherhood of evil mutants this team that Magneto beats everyone. So what does that mean? It says, continuing with John Byrne's actual words, he destroys the Avengers. He destroys the Fantastic Four in their very early stages. 
in order to destroy the Fantastic Four. They team up with Doctor Doom. Doctor Doom then then turns on them. This is an earlier form of Doctor Doom, the one in around issue 10 of the FF, Fern says. He turns on them and magnetos, magnetically, simply crushes Doctor Doom's chest plate, laughing at him. So much for you, fella. Again, these are all John Burns' words. Then all of the other superheroes are either imprisoned or destroyed. Those who are not killed are imprisoned on Asteroid M. And Magneto rules the world. We show that it's not all that bad a place. Homo sapiens are not the top dogs anymore. The world is ruled by Magneto's homo superiors. And everything is going along nice, cool, and neat. Until one day, the Silver Surfer comes followed immediately by Galactus. The interviewer says, uh-oh, because he knows what this means. And because, in this case, since the Thing was killed in the destruction of the Fantastic Four, there is no Alicia Masters to soften the heart of Silver Surfer, so the Surfer does not turn on Galactus as he did in the Fantastic Four book. So Galactus eats the planet. He eats Earth. And Roger Stern says, wow, nice ending. He goes, of course. Asteroid M with all these superheroes on it, which is in orbit, goes drifting off into space. Spider-Man, Daredevil, and all the other survivors that opposed Magneto and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants are in stasis. Roger Stern says, What a marvelous story! Will it ever see print? Hold that thought. And this is me now talking to you. (laughs) You, the listener, hold that thought. He says, I sure hope so. If Chris and I could get around to making it, it would make a great annual. He says, Did you put that story together with Chris? He says, Yes, Chris Claremont and I came up with that. And uh, they don't come back to that story. They, that's all we got. And my imagination ran wild, given that story, thinking of how that would have looked, inked by Terry Austin. Well, let's talk sphere of influence. John Byrne is an entire generation's favorite X-Men artist of all time. I cannot stress to you enough, you do not get Jim Lee without John Byrne. You do not get Mark Silvestri without get John Byrne. You do not get Paul Smith without John Byrne. John Byrne took over the X-Men, transformed it, made it the most exciting, most electric, most um, amazing comic book in the history of Marvel. At that time, it was electric. It became the top-selling, mar- top-selling book for Marvel for nearly a decade, 10 years at the top. That is insane. You want to talk sphere of influence? That is sphere of influence. The book was struggling. I already talked of issues 107 and 108. The reason Dave Cockrum had to leave the book is he couldn't maintain the schedule. We've covered this in so many different episodes. This is historically accurate. Dave speaks of it on the record in a number of different interviews. Some of our in the X-Men Companion, which Fanagraphics uh, put forth. Some are in Amazing Heroes. Some are in Comics Journal. Dave Cockrum was very... Uh, forthcoming in that he could not make the schedule monthly. Uh, The editor, Archie Goodwin, had put together what he believed was the dream team based on Byrne and Austin doing Star-Lord, which we will do a deep, deep dive into Star-Lord because without Star-Lord, that isn't the template for what these guys can do. Archie Goodwin says, I want you both to work together on the X-Men. Byrne can do a monthly book. He's just done monthly. Iron Fist was monthly. John Byrne did it. He was doing Marvel team-up do X-Men, and let's see if we can pull this around so that we don't have to cancel it again. Because because we can't, Archie was of the mind that if people got more of the X-Men, because with Dave Cockrum, after it came out from Giant Size X-Men, it was popular enough to resurrect it from the endless reprints that it had been in for three years. But, But Dave is only able to give you six issues a year. 
Archie bet that these characters would be received better if they came out on a monthly basis. He needed an artist that could deliver monthly. John Byrne not only delivered monthly, he invested so much of his own personal enthusiasm and, 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 and vision of what these characters could be that combining with Chris Claremont, he made classics that people still are like, let's make Dark Phoenix for the fourth time. Let's have a series, explore Days of Future Past. Everybody wants to remake the, the classic Burn Claremont stories because they were, wait for it, that good. They were that good. I, I've told you, if they reprint it, I just buy it. I have so many different hardcovers, all different sizes. Marvel Smart, they're like, Liefeld will definitely buy this if we make it an inch bigger. So it's not the same size as the one we did last year. And the people like Liefeld because that's who they're selling to. And I buy it, $59, $69, $39, $49, whatever it is. Swipe, 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 swipe. I hit the card, I buy it, I take it home. But that's not the purpose of this. I'm just underscoring how popular and, and the legacy of John Byrne, how his pages are now going for $100,000. A new page was listed. I was sent it before I got on. An interior page of the X-Men, starting price hundred grand. Um, I could retire on my John Byrne art alone. I won't. I'm keeping them. But buying new stuff is super duper pricey. Super duper pricey. $100,000 is the starting. He has the highest uh, pricing for interior artwork. Nobody, nobody's X-Men artwork. Not, not, not Jim Lee. Jim Lee's interior artwork is, is expensive. It's going for 40, 50, not a hundred, not a hundred thousand. John Byrne, Terry Austin, this stuff is the primary goal of a generation to own. It is like to own a masterwork. These, that's why these pages are going for such insane prices, but check this out. John Byrne, a couple years ago, Talk to Marvel about coming back to X-Men. It didn't work out. That didn't stop John. See how I covered that really fast? They talked. It didn't work out. John decided, I'm going to draw, draw, uh, draw the X-Men again for myself. And he's been doing it for three years. It's called X-Men Elsewhen on his John Byrne Robotics Forum. I don't know the exact URL. He puts up a page a day every week during Monday through Friday. He has produced four different trade paperbacks worth of material and one of them he did a version of that what if story that I just shared with you guys I'm flipping through the pages right now of an alternate dimension Magneto with Archangel who has a flaming sword and the different visor on Cyclops and the different Magneto is leading the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants of whom Jean Grey and Cyclops are a part of alongside the Scarlet Witch and Beast and, and Quicksilver, and they cross over in our dimension to battle the X-Men that we know and love. So he, in essence, finally, just this last year, did this what-if story that I read about in 1980 that I've longed for. John, I think, knew that this was um, this was a, a... There's Beast with the Claws. There's Beast with the Claws, baby. That Beast that I used to draw all the time, he's right here. There are fans. You want to talk about sphere of influence. John Byrne does this. He, uh, he, he, he draws these pages. He makes them available for you to see. And, and there are different people who are downloading, downloading them every day. And they're creating bootleg comic book editions of them. I am not anywhere going to swim in the waters of the legality of all this. But at no point is anyone charging anyone 
to buy these. Maybe if someone has them, they're up on eBay and that's where you can see them and that's where some money is going to change hands. But these bootleg editions, if you cannot, if you if you can believe, I get that someone knows how much I love John Byrne and has mailed these to me. I am holding a trade paperback of the What If edition, okay? <clears throat> and it's got the Archangel that I love and it's got the Beast with the Claws and it's got the exact uh, description of these characters. It's got, you know, Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch with Psyche and Cyclops and Archangel with the Flaming Sword and the Beast and they are battling the modern, what we know as the modern X-Men or what, what, what would have been the modern X-Men under uh, under John Byrne. It's even got the Avengers in it. He's got Spider-Man in it. He's got Fantastic Four in it. He's got the Imperial Guard. John Byrne basically picked up the saga of the X-Men as if he never left back in 1980 and continued it how he would put it forth. And thousands of fans are following every page that he loads. That is the sphere of influence. He left the book in 1980. That is when the clock did not turn to 81 with John Byrne working on the X-Men. He left in 1980. His run was 1977 to 1980. It electrified the masses. He came back three years ago. And so now 40 years after leaving, 41 years, fans are collecting these pages into bootleg graphic novels, trade paperbacks, of which I have one, two, three, four volumes. They just find me. Somebody knows I love them and they say, I thought you'd love this. And they have somehow printed them. They are, I mean, these are amazing. Do I believe that in some point in the future there's a deal struck? I don't know. I don't want to talk about that. That makes me like leery. I didn't come on here to make a political statement. This is an emotional statement. This is a sphere of influence. John Byrne is still making X-Men stories 40 years after the greatest run of the X-Men ever. The most profound. Okay. Again, what do you want to see them do? I want to see them remake the Dark Phoenix saga. Okay. Because that saga was a year and it involves portrayals of the Hellfire Club and the Shi'ar and the Imperial Guard and stuff that we just never have received from the Fox versions. And uh, because this stuff is, it's just absolutely beloved. It is absolutely uh, celebrated, critically acclaimed. Again, you don't get to any modern day X-Men and everybody I, Joe Mad, Jim Lee, Paul Smith, Silvestri, none of them without this stellar run that is the bright shining star of the of Marvel Comics the last, you know, 45 years. And John Byrne is able to, now here's the deal, he sells, this is the killer. You're going, why would he do that? Well, I'll tell you why. So he's done, uh, let's see, uh, about 500 pages of the X-Men, maybe a little more <clears throat> since he came back. Because he's doing like 22-page issues plus covers, or plus, uh, not not covers. He's doing 22-page issues, and he's done about 25 of them, which brings him almost 550 pages. He's been selling these originals on average for $2,000. John Byrne has conceivably made a million dollars redrawing the X-Men for himself, scanning them and uploading them. That, my friends is a sphere of influence. I know I've met people. They've told me how much they sold this for. Another publisher from another company emailed me last summer and said, have you seen these prices? These John Byrne Elsewhen, these, you know, pages that he's putting up for free, for you to absorb for free, 
have a fan base that is buying them in the neighborhood of $2,000 a page. Some of them are higher. So based on that alone, if you do the math on, 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 on 550 pages times average 2,000, you're going to come up with $1.1 million because he is moving that art. And I see people who have them. And the people who can't afford the $100,000 John Byrne page that just went up for auction are gladly buying pages for $2,500. That, my friends, is sphere of influence. I feel I feel like it's the mic drop of all time. I really, I, I've taken a lot of your time today. I got you all the way to where I needed you to be. This what if story kind of, sort of came to life. He just takes that Brotherhood of Evil Mutants ideas and bridges through a parallel universe of which multiverses are now becoming the thing. So John is really ahead of it. John Byrne is currently right now, by, by, by the way, doing the retelling how he would have told the Wolverine story. That Wolverine story that you love, that X-Men story that you love with Captain America, Black Widow, and Wolverine was first suggested by John Byrne in his 1980 Comics Journal interview where he said he had a story where Captain America and Wolverine fought together in World War II and they knew each other. And in the modern day, Cap recognized Wolverine. So when you see that story that Chris Claremont and Jim Lee did, that came from John Byrne. He just never got to do it. Well, he's doing it now. He's doing it now. Those are the issues. He's moved beyond this what-if story. He's now in the closing in on 30 issues. He will have been, you know, probably by 2022, he'll be 28, 29, 30 issues into this X-Men that he's producing that people are downloading and compiling as their own kind of bootleg comic books. You're not going to find this in your comic store. I don't see a store online where you buy them. I haven't even checked eBay. I'm making assumptions here. I just know somebody's downloading them, printing them, and sending them to me for free, okay? So, uh, but the Wolverine origin, Wolverine in World War II is happening right now. This is very exciting times. This, my friends, is sphere of influence. A guy whose work is celebrated that was done 40 years ago, he is still dining out on right now. And and, and he changed so much beyond the X-Men, Captain America, Marvel Team-Up, Spider-Man, Alpha Flight, Fantastic Four, Superman, Submariner, John Byrne, was and will remain one of the most influential creators to ever cross the spectrum of comic books, period. And today, with this uh, trade landing at my doorstep and it embodying a story that I've wanted to hear my entire life, again, you've got people like Spielberg, Aaron Spelling, Glenn A. Larson, other artists, whether it's Prince, Michael Jackson, they just do these runs of hits, a decade of just complete dominance. That's what Vern did in comics. That's why he's still able to do this today. Sphere of influence, folks. That's what it is. That's what it's about. John Byrne had it. Uh, I, 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 I feel like I've said all I can say. So what I'm going to do is wrap the show up with your interviews like I do each and every week because you guys are so generous and we absolutely need you guys out there on the front lines sharing your passion for the show. I appreciate it. This is a show that I do for fun. I do it for fun. I appreciate that you guys are sharing the enthusiasm of this show with other people. I really, I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. And, and at the end of every episode, when you guys leave me reviews, I read them. Today, I'm going to read a review. This one is from Tomiker or Tom Miker. T-O-M-I-K-E-R. Okay? Really appreciate it. It says, <clears throat> it's called The Best Part 3. Gave us five stars. To that, I say thank you, sir. Tomiker, Tomiker. Yo, the live panel episode is my favorite of late. 
The interview with Eric Larson was fantastic. Excited for X-Force 30th, even though I wasn't even alive when X-Force number one came out. This just means how fantastic your characters, artwork, and stories are. You make an entire generation retreat back into the past for some amazing content. Profit rocks! Thank you, T-O-M-I-K-E-R. Tumiker or Tumiker? Tumiker, whatever. Thank you for this very generous um, review. This is what I do. You guys read the reviews. You guys leave the reviews. I read the reviews. I thank you so much for listening to the show, for sharing your love, your passion. Um, Sphere of influence. Wow, we could go all day, but think of what I've told you. These significant talents that just have profound influence, some so deep that you can go back to that well 40 years later and continue to mine it. I am all over social media. I am on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. My full name on Twitter with the blue check. That's really me. Instagram, Rob Liefeld. I'm Rob Liefeld on Instagram. Another blue check, blue check next to my name so you know that you are really talking to the legitimate dude, not a phony. <clears throat> People hijack these names all the time. I am all over Facebook. Obviously, many groups, Legion of Superheroes. I mentioned it today. I'm all over so many different groups. I love talking to you guys. I love interacting with you guys online. I love uh, all the different topics that we discuss. Thank you for reaching out, for talking to me, for listening to this show. I am so, so, so very grateful. You guys know that this is the time that you tell me that you are going to take care of yourself. All right? And, uh, and do that. Please do that. Above all else, take care of yourself. Stay safe. And we will talk again real soon. 